Well, today we're talking about the fragrance of life or the stench of death. Are you a smelly Christian? Now, I'm not too sure if you like odours or perfumes or whatever. We used to have a small group and Linda couldn't tolerate anybody wearing any sort of perfume. She was from Europe and um, she just couldn't stand that. She didn't want that in her house. And so today it talks about being prisoners in Christ's triumphal procession. Now you might have questions. So if you've got questions, you can actually text through to this number 0422 747703. And uh, at the end of the service, if it works, the guys at the back will actually put up the questions and we'll see what we get. Now, if you ask which country, um, which party to vote for, I won't answer that question. <laughs> so our passage today can be broken up a bit like this. Paul talks about joining Christ's triumphant parade. He's part of a parade, and he's pleased to be part of it. But also he talks about spreading the fragrance of the life of Christ And to some people that brings life, to others the stench of death. Then the fact of profiteering from preaching. Now that's what Josh does, doesn't he? Profits. I don't know, no idea. (laughs) But also about being certified from God in terms of ministry. And the proof of that is getting results and then being equipped by God. Now, we're used to Anzac Day parades that celebrate victory. I had an uncle who was part of the Home Guard in New Zealand, and they'd been out for a compulsory march, and theoretically they were going to be assigned to somewhere in the Second World War. But as they came back into town after a five-kilometre march, they couldn't make out what had gone wrong in the town. Everybody was out on the streets and they were shouting and so on. The war had finished and everybody was celebrating. An Anzac parade is about that, celebrating victory over our enemies. Now just imagine if it's going to be a grand final day parade. So that the victors, of course, this year are going to be Collingwood. <laughs> and so, but those who are coming behind them are the ones they've conquered. So they're going to come down Swanson Street and there's going to be all the Collingwood fans there, half of Melbourne. (laughs) And whoever they defeat is in their trail. Now can you imagine that? So they've been defeated, they've been humiliated, they've lost. They're going to be upset about that. But that would be some parade, wouldn't it? I don't think that will happen. But our passage talks about a triumphal parade. Now the Romans, when they had celebrated some victory, whoever was the actual conquering soldier would come back into town and there'd be a great triumphal parade. It was a day off for everyone. And he would come riding in to Rome on a four-horse-drawn chariot. 
and all the soldiers behind him were unarmed in his procession, those he had captured, and the spoils of war. His face would be painted red to imitate the god Jupiter. And as he came past the temple of Jupiter, they would stop there and offer sacrifices to Jupiter. And some of those sacrifices, they would actually slaughter some of the prisoners that they had conquered. Now that's some parade, isn't it? This is a picture of the Emperor Marcus Aurelius and his parade. But notice on the top of his head is a genius which symbolises divinity. They thought of him like a god that had come in and conquered. If you go to Rome, you'll see the Arch of Titus, which is near the Colosseum. And depicted on the inside of the arch are a whole lot of scenes from his victory in Israel. And part of that is the soldiers carrying away the spoils from the temple, the serum branch, candlestick, and so on. And that's there, and it's still there for everybody to see. So Paul has got that in the background of some triumphal parade that everybody that he's writing to would be aware of. But the person leading the parade is Christ. And Revelation depicts this, that Christ has come riding out of heaven on a white horse. A victory. And Paul is saying that in his train, we have been led as prisoners in Christ's victory possession. He, like others, have been freed from the bondage of darkness. They've been liberated. And he says we're part of this train, part of this victory that we're a part of. Yeah, he says as part of that victory parade, we are spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere to those who are being saved. Now, Pat, I think, talked about tipping a waitress. Spreading the fragrance of Christ everywhere. So when people encounter you, what do they encounter? What smell do they get? Do they get the smell of the knowledge of Christ? Because that's what Paul is saying. Because in the Roman victory parade, they've been burning incense. When the Jews offered sacrifice, incense would go up to heaven. And Paul says, we're like that. This is pleasing to God, but also to those who we're bringing the knowledge of salvation to. Those who are being saved. It's tremendous. Now I wonder, have you brought the knowledge of Christ, the fragrance of Christ to anyone? Would anybody be aware that you're a believer? Your neighbours, are they aware what you're doing this morning and why you're doing it? Or don't they know what you're doing today? You know, I met an AFL player. He had played for Collywood for four years. And his wife and others had become believers. And folk were hass hassling Russell to actually become a believer. 
And he says to me, Keith, he says, I just don't get it. And these folk were just hassling him and so on. His wife was, his sister-in-law. And I said, well, Russ, I said, you know, let's imagine there's a line. And those above the line get to go to heaven. And those who are below the line, they don't. So I said, do you know anybody who's better than you? Well, he says, I hate to admit it, but my wife is. Well, I said, do you know anybody that's worse than you? Well, he says, some of those wretches I played against. In fact, he says, because one of them hit me, I couldn't play anymore. I sure know folk who are worse than I am. So I said to him, okay, Russ, where do you think you fit? Above the line or below the line? Where do you reckon you are? And he says, I don't know, beats me. So I said to Russ, God has drawn a line. In fact, every one of us is below that line, including your wife. Because that line says that those above it are perfect, without fault. Those below it are not perfect. No one's without fault. Everyone falls short of God's standard. Everyone has sinned. So I said to Russ, you and I are below that line. Regardless of what we think we do, where we think we're better than others and so on, we all come below that line. But said, God has said, the only way above that line is to admit that we're a sinner. Now, that's hard for us to do. See, Josh found it hard to admit that he was a thief. (laughs) But his response is like all of us. We hate to say, I'm wrong. And therefore, to admit to God that we're actually wrong, we're not perfect, we fall below that line, we find that difficult. We resist that. And people today still resist that. But God's promise is that we confess to him our sin. He is faithful and just and will forgive us and to cleanse us from all wickedness. And so I said to Russ, he was brought up in a Catholic background, I said, you understand that Christ died for our sins. He was the sin sacrifice for us. And if we understand that, and believe that Christ died for you and for me, admit to God that we are sinners, God says he'll forgive us. He'll make us different people. Well, we had the pleasure of baptising Russ in the sea one morning, along with Julius, who was 80-something, and a few others that had been led to the Lord. And he gets up to give his testimony, and this is what he said. He said, some of you standing here, he said, were harassing me, and he said, I have no clue what you're on about. But he says, Keith talked to me, and he's a nice, simple fellow. And he just gave him the story that I've just talked about, drawing a line. See, that was the evidence that we were spreading the fragrance of Christ to a Collywood player, an ex-Collywood player. And because of that, he became a believer. 
But then Paul says to others, we are the steeds that brings death to those who are perishing. You see, there's going to be some people because we witness to them, we share the gospel, we share the knowledge of Christ with them, they will shun us. They'll avoid us. They'll hate us, persecute us, reject us. You know, I have folk in my life that are like that. They don't want us around. We're an embarrassment to them. When we and our neighbours were having a Christmas street party at the end of our street, it's a no-through road, and anyhow, we were having a barbecue, etc. together, and in the end they said, listen, Keith, you go home. Don't you have a message to prepare for tomorrow? Because while you're here, we can't tell the jokes we want to tell. Get out of here. You see, we're an embarrassment to them. Because they knew we were believers, we followed the Lord Jesus. So they reject us. And this is what Paul is saying. People will reject us. And if you read the story of Acts, it's happening here in this church. He's the plant of the church. He's the father of the church. And these folk now don't want to know him. They're accusing him of all sorts of things. And that hurts. And so Paul is saying, this is how folk will do it. Jesus says, the way they've treated me, they'll treat you. And when you become a believer, no one shares that verse with you, do they? They don't. But if we live for the Lord, that's what happens. People will persecute us and so on. And do all sorts of nasty things to us. And Paul experienced that. And in the end he was arrested by his fellow Jews and carted off to Rome as a prisoner. But then Paul talks about the wages of those in ministry. Now just this week, this is the headlines. Aussies want big bucks too. Now that's the culture we live in. We all want more money. That's what motivates most of the folk in our society. We're not content with what we have. We want more. It doesn't matter if you're pinching or you want more or whatever. We want more. Now Paul says we're not in the business of sharing the gospel for money. We're not doing that. We're not like a TV evangelist that says, now if you give us money, you'll be made well, you'll be made rich and so on. Paul says, that's not us, not a bar of it. Now you imagine if Josh wrote to the elders and said, if you don't pay me, give me a pay rise, I'll refuse to preach or bury you or whatever. Pay me what I'm worth. Now how do you assess how to share with somebody in ministry? What benchmark do you use? How do you do that? Now Paul, when he wrote his first letter to these folk, he refused to accept their money. So that I don't want it. Because they were misunderstanding about him. He says, I have the right to it. You shouldn't muzzle the ox that treads out the coin. I have a right to your support. To have a wife and to lead her around. But I don't want your money. Because 
they were thinking that he was there to make a profit out of them. So Paul said, no, I don't want it. I don't want it. I have a friend whose name is Cess, Cess Hilton, and he was an evangelist in New Zealand. And he'd had a crusade at a particular church, and at the end of the, the crusade, one of the men came up to him with an envelope to give him. Now, you've got to understand that he's an example of what God and an Irishman can do. Because he said, as he looked at that, he says, Brother, have you prayed about this? He had no idea what was in the envelope. The guy kind of looked at him and he said, He said, have you prayed about this? The guy said, well, no. He said, right, okay, go away and pray about it. When they came back with the envelope, it had two checks in it. You see, how do we assess a preacher's wages? You imagine if this was the headline in the paper this week. Preachers want big bucks too. But Paul says that's not the way that motivates us. When we were in Rome as missionaries, often people would say, how much is the church paying you? And they couldn't believe that the church didn't pay us anything. They didn't believe us. But that was true. And so Paul says we're not preaching, we're not in the business of serving God for money. That's not what motivates us. That's not what ministry is about. It's not about material gain. He said, we preach God's word with sincerity. We're not tricksters. We're not con people. We're not here to deceive you. We're not here to fleece you. If you read the book, The Thornbirds, which depicts a Catholic priest here in Australia, and he is assigned to particular rural properties where the owner of the property is a widow. And his task was to con those women into leaving their properties for the church. That was his role. And he succeeds in that. And Paul says, I'm not that sort of person. When we were visiting Bermuda once, and we were there for ministry, been there four times for ministry, and this lady was there, and she got to meet us. And she took a shine to us. She was a widow. And... uh, Her and her husband were very, very good artists. Her husband had depicted or painted nearly all the top brass in the British Army in the Second World War. He was a good portrait painter. She said, now, Keith, she says, if you help me pack up all these paintings and to take them to London to be sold there, I'll pay you. Now, what would you do with that? I had no idea about what the total value would be. But I'm not in the business of creating up paintings to get money. She wanted us to help her. As far as I know, she's not a believer. But Paul says, we're not those sort of people. Not here to make money out of you. But we do preach with God's authority. God has commissioned us, he's sent us, 
And that's why we're here. But more importantly, we're aware that God's watching. That what we're doing, God reads our motives in our hearts and our heads. He knows what's going on inside of us. And Paul's conscious of that. That his life is being lived in the presence of God and nothing's hidden. What's making him tick? So Paul has said, we're not about to praise ourselves. We're not here to set us up as better than anybody else. Now Paul had a great church, plant a record. And he could say, nobody's worked harder than I have. But rather it was God working through us. But he's not boasting about his achievements. I was trying to think today of how I could illustrate this for ourselves. And I decided I wouldn't do that. But I've got some interesting plaques at home and some interesting letters. You know, in in those people's eyes, they thought I was okay. But those things aren't things to parade around. When we worked at Emmaus, all the degrees I'd earned were not on public display. They were hidden away in my office. Nobody saw them. So Paul says, we're not like others. We're not here to boast. We don't need to bring all these letters of recommendation and endorsement and so on. He said, I don't need a letter from you. Now we have served in different places. And folk have written about that. But we don't need to parade those letters about what's happened. Paul is saying the only letter that we need is you yourselves. You're the evidence of our ministry. We saw you come to faith through our ministry. But it wasn't us. It was God who gave the increase. So he said, you're written on our hearts. That's our letter. And anybody can see that about our work amongst you. It doesn't have to be written on a piece of paper. So he says, clearly you are a letter from Christ showing the results of our ministry among you. So you're the evidence that God's worked through us. Now it surprised me, a person worked in ministry in the university here in Melbourne with a particular group, worked there for five years. And so I said to this person, who have you seen come to know the Lord? And he says, no one. You don't know others who worked in the same university here saw repeated students come to faith. Now, I don't know what's wrong with that guy's ministry. I don't know. But it seemed odd to me that some of his colleagues were seeing folk come to the Lord and he wasn't. I don't know. But Paul is saying, you're the evidence that God's with us. God's worked through us. You're God's endorsement on our lives. So he said, that's our confidence before God. Now that's me shearing a sheep. I was brought up on a farm. I'm a sheep shearer. I only finished year 11 at school. My dad never went to high school. That's the background. 
Not remember I was interested in a particular girl, but I know that her parents thought, a farmer? You're not good enough for our daughter. And Paul says, I'm like that. I've got an amazing heritage in one sense, but our competency, our ability, doesn't come from our backgrounds. So we can't claim anything for ourselves. I can't claim a heritage or my upbringing. It says the only ability we have in this ministry is the ability that comes from God's Spirit. Now this year, Catherine and I have been doing a course about living like Jesus. Now I'm not too sure of your impression of the Lord Jesus. Do you think of him as a genuinely, truly human person? That he was just as human as you are? Or do you see him as somebody who just pulls out his God card? Now it's very interesting. This is what Jesus says, alright? He's a genuine human being. Made human. God in flesh. And this is what Jesus says about his ministry. I can't do anything of myself. He says, I can only do what I see my father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does. I myself can do nothing. Now I don't think we see this picture of Jesus that is absolutely impotent as a human being to do what he was doing unless God did it through him. And when Jesus is praying just before he goes to the cross, he says in that prayer, I gave them the words that you gave me and they accepted them. So you can see how Jesus was dependent on the ministry of God in his life and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When he talked about his miracles and they accused him of being in league with the devil, and he says, listen, I can't cast out demons except by the finger of God, by the Holy Spirit. He says, this is not me doing it. It's the finger of God doing it through me. And Paul is saying the same thing. In terms of ministry, he says, I can't do this. It's not within my power, my ability to do it. But God gave us the ability to do this. So he says, our ability in ministry comes from the Spirit of God working through us. In the different places where we've worked, we've seen folk come to know the Lord. In one sense, it's amazing. We were working with churches in England between the city of Chester and Birkenhead, an area called the Wirral, just up by Liverpool City. And so you've got the Mersey River on one side and another river on the other side. And 22 local churches there banded together for a crusade. They asked us to come and work with them for that year. Between Catherine and myself, we spoke 40 times a month for that year. 
We were busy. But one of the folk that I was part of, there were seven of us on a steering committee, he designed a little leaflet. And the area is called Wirral. So the way for Wirral, question mark. The way for Wirral, who cares? The way for Wirral, who knows? The way for Wirral, who can advise? And then there was a page that says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. And there was an offer of a free living New Testament to each home who wrote in. Now, how many people do you think wrote in? Those little coupons would be sent to our address. So between the city of Chester and Birkenhead, how many people do you think responded? Anybody has it a guess? There's a few palms who live in England. What? None. None? No, it was better than none. <laughs> 12,000 homes wrote in for a living New Testament. Now, we couldn't do that ourselves. And through that crusade, over 70 adults became believers. Before we came back to Australia, over 52 of those were being baptised and part of local churches. But you see, that wasn't us at work. That was God at work. So Paul says, God has made us competent as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, the spirit gives life. See, the new covenant that we're ministers of is the covenant of life. Where God promised to give us a new heart. To write his laws on our heart. They're not legalistic laws. They kill. And often in churches, they're still under a, a covenant that kills. It's laws, it's negative. But Paul says, that's not us. We belong to a living dynamic covenant that brings life through God's spirit. And so we can ask ourselves, so what? How do you smell as a Christian today? Do you give off the fragrance of the life or the odour of eternal death? How smelly are you? Can people sense the fragrance of Jesus in your life? Or do they smell the vile odour of eternal death? You know, I've seen people slam the door on faith in Christ and walk away. So those people wear the stench of death. We bring to them the message of damnation unless they put their faith and trust in Christ. Let's pray and then we'll see if there's any questions. Father, we thank you for the fact that you've invaded our lives through our Lord Jesus, that we share in his triumph, his victory over Satan and sin, the grave. We look forward to that day 
when that victory will be seen when he rides out of heaven and we can be part of that train. We ask that you would help us to serve you with the right motives, with the right mission, with the right fragrance that we might spread the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. This we ask in his name. Amen.